The Stratford Slice is produced using Anchor, Spotify's free podcasting platform, the easiest way to create, distribute, and monetize your show. Say it all with Anchor. This podcast is produced by Ballinran Entertainment, Southwestern Ontario's number one film, television, and digital media studio, illuminating extraordinary stories since 1995. Visit us at ballinran.com. The Stratford Slice is sponsored in part by Dancing Waters Boutique, treasures from Asia in the heart of downtown Stratford. Visit them at 11 York Street or dancingwatersboutique.com. And a special shout-out to Vista Radio and our friends at mystratfordnow.com for hosting the podcast, which is also available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. And be sure to follow us on Instagram, at the Stratford Slice. Hello, it's Craig Thompson, and this is the Stratford Slice. From global to local, a conversation with former Canadian diplomat, scholar, and community advocate, Deanna Horton. Well, off the top, I have to say this is going to be a two-part episode. There's so, just so much happening in the world stage, as well as at the community level. We can't cover it all, but the two are closely connected, so stay tuned for a cliffhanger. To help guide us through that is Deanna Horton. She's a senior fellow at the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy, where her academic research is focused on the study of Japan. She's also a global fellow at the Wilson Center for International Scholars in Washington, a senior fellow at the Asia Pacific Foundation and the Canadian Global Affairs Institute. Deanna Horton's expertise on Japan and on Asia in general comes from her lengthy career in Canada's foreign service. In 2008, she was appointed Canada's ambassador to Vietnam. She then served as a minister to Canada's embassy in Washington, and other postings included 12 years in Tokyo, culminating in her role as deputy head of mission. She also helped negotiate the original North American Free Trade Agreement. Here in Stratford, she's active in the community, serves on the board of the Stratford Perth Museum, and generally brings a perspective that reminds us that even small towns like Stratford can learn from the winds of change sweeping the world. So, Deanna, welcome to the Stratford Slice. Thank you. I'm happy to be a slice. <laughs> it's going to be a slice. Um, Deanna, as I prepared for our chat today, I was reminded of this. One can never measure the present until it becomes history. One can never predict the future without assessing the past. But we're going to try our, our best today. So how would you describe it in very general terms, the state of the world that we're living in today? Oh, dear. Well, the state of the world is very complicated. It's probably one of the most challenging periods. And I think we're in a period of transition, which I think particularly for those of us in North America, but also people in Asia, it's a very difficult time. It's interesting that everything seems to culminate at once. We had the global pandemic. We've had economic problems. We're having geopolitical conflict. Is there um, an action and reaction? Is there a connection between everything that's happening, or are these isolated things moving around the chessboard, so to speak? Well, I think there are certain trends that can be identified um, that have been taking place for since the dawn of the 21st century, so, so to speak. 
But then there are things that put a spanner in the work, such as the war in Ukraine, for example, that change the, that change the dynamic completely. So in terms of long-term trends, um, one of my favorites, and you can't see this, but I'm just going to describe it. One of my favorite um, websites to look at is the Visual Capitalist. And because I do, I do a lot of work with data visualization. Uh, my project, my initial project at the Monk School was depicting Canada's um, presence in Asia, Canada's footprints in Asia. And I have a map called CanAsia Footprint that shows where Canadian companies are. But I think what is important, and I did a lot of research related to that. And what I found very interesting is that a lot of the I'm particularly focused on digital and digital trade, and it's the things that are difficult to measure, and that's why when you look at location, you can find things that you don't see just from the usual official statistics. So the point I'm, I'm making, though, is that when we did, we did some research, a deep dive on uh, the digital economy and the companies in Asia, and we discovered that a lot of those smaller companies set up locations in Asia before they went anywhere else. So that goes against what I had been taught and what I had thought and many people think is that small companies tend to go to the US first. But when you look at growth, the growth in the world is in Asia. The other thing that's interesting and, and that is mirrored by when you look at trading partnerships. So way back in the day, in 1960, again, I'm looking at the visual capitalist, when you look at who was trading with whom in 1960, the US is one nexus of trade, the UK is a nexus of trade, and then you've got Germany and France. Then you have the emergence of China, and when you look then again in 2020, much later, decades later, China is the largest trading partner for 120 countries in the world. So the, the nexus of China is huge and it surpasses that of the US. So there was, there's been this big shift and this is kind of the long-term trend. There's been this big shift between the US and China in terms of who's trading with whom. China has surpassed the U.S. So even though the U.S. is still the world's largest economy, both uh, in global terms but also on, on per capita, capita basis, China has taken over for, for many countries. So how does this affect when you have these trading pat patterns? This also affects the whole geopolitics of things because it's no longer that everyone just looks at the U.S., they also look to China. And so when you get to places like in Africa, the, U, the US, the Western liberal democracies, the system that was set up in the post-war period hasn't helped Africa as much as China has. So that's something to consider. China has helped Africa much more that you're saying than the Western democracies because they've invested so heavily in infrastructure. That's correct. And infrastructure is important. North America has an infrastructure deficit. And for 
anyone who travels in Asia, but also to some extent and in, in, in Europe, you see how badly our infrastructure has deteriorated. And sometimes when I was living in Asia, I would come back to Canada and feel like I was going to a developing country. And I still feel that way. And you go to China and you see all of these things that they've, uh, they have, and it's, uh, it's mind-boggling uh, how advanced their technology is and infrastructure. Yet we have this balancing act that's taking place right now uh, regarding the cost and the benefits and the pros and cons of dealing with China. Yep. Give us some perspective on that, because as we're recording this today, at some point David Johnson's going to come out with a report on Chinese interference in Canadian elections. We have to acknowledge that China is the dominant force, as you say, in the global economy, but there is uh, the pros and cons of that. Can you sort of give us some perspective on that? Well, I think Canada, like other countries, South Korea, Japan, Indonesia, I can name a bunch of them, and also countries in Europe are trying to navigate between the U.S. and China in terms of the importance of China as a trading partner is obvious. Um, and many countries are reliant on China. And when you look at even things like what everybody's talking about, critical minerals and electric vehicles, batteries and things like that, this whole supply chain, China controls a major part of it. So in the West, we have this we want, we're trying to get to net zero in terms of growth in carbon emissions, et cetera. EVs are considered to be one of the solutions to that, although EVs have their own share of problems. But when you look at the critical minerals that are necessary for those, and, and also even looking at cell phones, mobile phones, you, you, don't, you have no idea, most people, how many minerals are in cell phones. So you say, oh, I don't like mining. Well, then throw away your cell phone. So I think that, that, you know, we who live in Western liberal democracies would like to think that we have the best system and, and that our system is the one that should dominate. But on the other hand, the rules that were created in the post-war period are not, are not seen by many countries to be the rules for them. So, and rules are, you know, rules are for the winners. And often this whole issue, for example, at the G7 last weekend. So you don't hear the word China very much. China is the invisible giant in the room or elephant or whatever you want to call it. But China was there the whole time in the sense that they weren't in the room, but they were in the room because so much of what is said has to do with China and India for that matter, although India was in the room as the representative of the G20. So um, I think that I was working on a paper on economic coercion in conjunction with other, it was led out of Japan with a bunch of other think tank people and economic coercion is now what people are talking about when they're, do, when they're talking about China. You never mention the word China, but this is economic coercion. So we're trying to think of ways to deal with economic coercion because China is a bully. We know that. But so is the United States. 
The United States does things like that too, although they insist that it is not economic coercion. But when you look at what happened with Canada, with the U.S. saying that Canada was a security threat and so they had to throw on tariffs on steel and aluminum and things like that, the U.S. does that too. And when you look at the rules, so WTO, for example, the U.S. doesn't tend to support the WTO. They have undermined it. And in terms of when you come to disputes, there are a lot of issues now with the WTO because the U.S. is not supporting it. So here's another example of we've created this structure. This is the structure we've been living in with. This is the so-called rules-based order. But these rules, when you're looking at the rules from Asia, look very different from when you're looking at them here. And I think that is important. And it's important also for Canadians to realize that we are a Pacific country. And we need to pay attention to the needs, not only of the big countries in Asia, but also the global south in terms of what their needs are. And I think there's a lot more that can be done. In your years in working on the international stage, and particularly in Asia, how much influence does Canada really have? Is there anything we can do to stand up to these countries that you call uh, bullies? Well, Canada has a lot of advantages. I would certainly say that, for example, we have no colonial baggage in Asia. The U.S. actually does have colonial baggage in Asia because of 1898 in the Philippines, et cetera. Um, we have none. Uh, that is a big advantage throughout the world. So we have, we also are, we're a, we're a joiner. So we have, we're members of La Francophonie, but also the Commonwealth, the G7, APEC. So we, we do play a role. However, I think that the issue is that Canada has fallen behind in terms of our leadership on a lot of issues where we would be able to play a leadership role, but we don't. And I think that we are trying to make a difference, but sometimes making a difference has to cost, it, it, it does cost resources, but I think we can make a difference with not a lot of resources. And I think we're falling behind on that. So I, I wrote a, um, a chapter in a book on the Indo-Pacific that came out last year on the digital economy because that's what I'm interested in. But here is another example where, you know, just your company here, the students at Waterloo, we have a lot of expertise in the digital economy. And we don't take advantage of that. We could make, in terms of our development assistance, for example, we should be going out and helping other countries to ensure that they have the best, the highest standards in terms of their ability to navigate in international e-commerce, for example. That's a huge opportunity, but also digital hygiene, as they call it. So to ensure that people's data is protected and that you know you have some um, protection against cyber secure on, on the cybersecurity front, et cetera. So we don't consider that 
as development assistance, but this should be the type of capacity building that brings everybody up to the same level and really empowers communities because that is what has been so interesting about e-commerce. So what the research I was doing was showing that e-commerce has really burgeoned in so many different parts of Asia and this is an opportunity. So for women-owned businesses, for indigenous communities, for small businesses all over the world, it used to be that we always thought about trade in goods. So you had to make something and then ship it overseas. The great thing about the digital economy is that you can create things and it's very easy to get them overseas once you figure out how to, how to do that. And also just promoting the types of connections that we need. And this is where Canada, the other big advantage for Canada is our community. We have, we speak a lot of the languages. So I remember years ago, we met with a gaming company in Asia who was very interested in Canada. Why? Because they, we have a population that would allow them to create games because you have to change games according to the, the culture that you're operating. So they could make games and have local people in Canada evaluate them for their own culture and ensure that the language is correct and appropriate, et cetera. So that's a huge advantage. So we need to recognize that the innovation agenda in Canada, it needs to be much more prominent than it is currently, I suspect. Oh, yes, absolutely. And I think we need to just ensure that when we consider, we, we need to think of things on a global basis so that when we are thinking about how are we going to work in capacity building. So even agriculture, for example, there's a lot of innovation in agriculture in Canada that we should be sharing even more than we do. And, you know, uh, training, there's all kinds of different areas where we could be much more active that don't cost a lot of money but also we have to be there. And I think, you know, I, I'm very distressed at the fact that so many Canadian students are not going to study in Asia. We have a lot of Asian students here, but very little in the opposite direction. And I find, I think that's very unfortunate. And I think we need to imp really push the students out there and uh, set up the kinds of programs and really encourage them and also financially support people to go and study overseas. I want to talk a bit more about uh, China. Many people forget that um, Canada has been a, uh, um, an, a friend of China for many, many decades. We helped during the famine in the early 1960s when the United States uh, wouldn't do it. We brought over the first uh, refugees, the first humanitarian uh, immigration that led to Canada's multicultural policy, Pierre Trudeau not Richard Nixon, was the first uh, Western uh, leader to go establish diplomatic relations. How did um, Canada's relationship with China get frayed? And are we just a convenient scapegoat for China because they don't want to really stand up as uh, vociferously to the United States? Well, I'm not a China expert, uh, nor am I an expert on Canada-China relations. However, um, I would say that uh, our relationship with China is still very good. On When you look at uh, trade and investment, we're still doing a lot. 
Um, unfortunately, I think on the political level, we have things have frayed, but that is also um, China has a lot of issues with other countries. Canada is not the only one. And when you look at um, what, what I find unfortunate is, of course, that um, when you look at public opinion polls across North America, also in Europe, the viewpoint on China has um, changed substantially. Um, China is not regarded favorably. Um, but when you look at the same polls, and you can look at the, um, uh, there's a great poll out of Singapore that looks at how people in Asia view China. China has gone down a notch in Asia, but China is important in Asia, so it, it, it still is considered um, favorably. Um, I think the challenge for um, Canada is to find the right kinds of niches and the right and the appropriate areas for cooperation. And this is not only Canada's challenge, it's also the challenge for other countries. And I think Canada is not going to get far on its own. We need to work with other countries, not necessarily the U.S. in this case, although we need to be consistent with the U.S. to some extent, but countries that face the same changes, the challenges that we do, for example, Japan and South Korea. Um, but, um, and I think also engaging with India. And I agree that India is going to be uh, important for Canada. We haven't done as well in India as we would like. And I think uh, this is another example of where we should be using our diaspora um, to really build relationships, uh, both uh, commercial, personal, et cetera. Um, Christia Freeland, the Deputy Prime Minister, calls this friend-shoring. Yes, Can yes. you elaborate on that a little bit? Is well, there's friend-shoring. They call it ally-shoring. Um, yes, it's building. Um, so I think the supply chain resilience is now one of the key words that you hear in a lot of the uh, statements coming out of various international meetings. And it has to do with ending an over-reliance on China. So when you look at the trading uh, patterns that I talked about earlier, where China is now the top trading partner for 120-some countries in the world, that has to do with supply chains. And I think that um, there are a lot of supply chains where if China were to act in a way that was not, um, let's say, uh, helpful to uh, the supply chain overall, uh, we that would that's a big risk. So now they're talking about de-risking with China, which has to do with let's try to find alternate sources. But going back to what I was talking about earlier on the electrical vehicle supply chain and the critical minerals, China has a hold on that. So that would be very difficult. However, when you look, China doesn't act in a way Generally, China is um, appropriate in its responses. So it's not, it, it doesn't go overboard on uh, punishing um, countries unless it feels really aggrieved. But for example, when we, when we um, PNG'd, persona non grated a, a Chinese uh, diplomat from, from Canada, they did the same thing but they didn't pick the top person. So it was, it was commensurate. So 
one has to hope that China will continue to do that. And even with major trading partners, and, and if you look at Japan, the, the intra-company transfers, uh, the two economies, China and Japan, are pretty much intertwined, similar to some extent as between Canada and the U.S. So there's a lot of Japanese manufacturers who actually do all their manufacturing in China. The brand is, is Japanese, but it's actually all made in, in, in China. So for the most part, despite diplomatic tiffs, uh, the trade has considered has con and investment has continued unabated. Now, the big problem, though, and this is where this is where we're at such an interesting inflection point. So, uh, the turn, the authoritarian turn in China um, under Xi Jinping, um, and the and the difficulties that companies have had who have invested in China. Uh, the new espionage laws, et cetera. People are concerned about, companies are concerned about that. It's d more difficult for companies, for certain companies to operate in China, although some companies seem to be having no issues whatsoever. I think it depends on the sector that you're operating in. But uh, there is definitely a, a challenge in, on some fronts for people who are operating in, chi in, in China. So. The question is, can the innovation of a, a country like China continue to grow when you have sanctions on the most valuable technologies, i.e. Uh, the chips, semiconductors, etc., and when you have a lot of restrictions on exchange of information because of the great, the great, firewall. Fi the great firewall, etc.? What I found interesting in my research um, that I was talking about earlier was that a lot of Chinese companies are setting up overseas, including in the rest of Asia. So some of their, some of the big companies have big operations outside of China, and I think they do a lot of their innovation. I don't know this for sure, but my guess would be that they do a lot of this kind of innovative work, not in China, but outside China. So whether, so the, the projections on growth, economic growth in China, for what reasons I just talked about, but also demography, um, because China's population is, is starting to slow, the growth is slowing. So people who were absolutely convinced that China was gonna overtake the US as in terms of the size of the economy in, end of this decade or perhaps early in the next de decade, people are now hedging on that. And some people are saying now that, you know, it's going to be more of a parity between the U.S. and China. The U.S. will always be the top in terms of innovation. But don't forget, one of the impacts of globalization is a lot of the manufacturing has moved out of the U.S. So this whole friendshoring thing that you were talking about is trying to get at least the important parts to move to either back to the U.S. or to friends, quote unquote. So that will be important going forward in terms of that trend. But no matter what happens, China is still going to be even if it's not the number one economy, it's going to continue to be the number two economy in, in, in all likelihood. 
That uh, economic parity you're talking about, do you think that was behind the Huawei uh, incident where the um, Canadians uh, were instructed or had to hold the Huawei executive uh, because of the uh, charges in the United States? Oh, you're saying, you're asking me whether... The Is that economic or political? Like, what was the, uh, what's the backstory that you can ascertain I, on that? I, I do not have a backstory on that, and, um, but Huawei was already declining in terms of the number of countries that would accept Huawei equipment. The, the, prob- yeah, yeah, the, yeah. the problem, though, is that when you look at other countries where Huawei is the dominant carrier or dominant 5G provider, and of course now we're talking about 6G and even 7G, so um, I think the issue, what I'm concerned about is you don't want the world developing into two technology camps. So that in terms of the, um, and uh, Janice Stein at the Monk School is very, very keen on this issue because I think her concern, and I share that, um, is that if, if, the, if China dominates on, on standards, and, and, but the U.S. insists on other standards, and so you end up the world divided into two camps, the whole idea about the digital economy is that it should be interchangeable, interoperable. You should be able to communicate with anybody. And if you divide up into two camps, then that's, that's, that's a problem. That being said, however, when you look at the development of standards, which is very important uh, for almost any product, both on the technology front, but any product generally, it, it was for the longest time it was a fight between the U.S. and the Europeans in terms of which standards were going to be accepted as the international standard. Now, of course, you've got it's mostly the West and versus China, and the the Chi- Chinese are paying a lot of attention to this and devoting a lot of resources, which we don't. So, the question of who's which engineers are sent to these meetings makes it makes a huge difference so and that's on the more on the on the physical side of the connectors and things like that but i think that if we are to develop a world and this is again this is going off in an, in a bit of another tangent but the the global superpower being one the g1 meaning g1 g2 us and china g3 us china europe you know, we can have a lot of Gs. And in fact, there are a lot of people, including in Asia, who think we need to be in a multipolar world. We don't necessarily need to have one bully. We need to be able, and, and one bully that doesn't necessarily pay enough attention to the re- what's going on in the rest of the world. So for example, um, Prime Minister, um, President Biden's early departure so that he didn't go to Australia. When you look at it from the Australians' point of view, they were unhappy because they wanted President Biden to come to the Quad. They were meeting. offended, yeah. yeah. Well, I don't know whether they were offended, <clears throat> but I think just from the viewpoint of we need the Asia is desperate for more U.S. engagement. They want the U.S. to be there. They also want China to be there. But they don't. They don't want the U.S. to withdraw. And this is where this is. They were very concerned during the um, uh, 
President Trump's administration on the lack of interest and lack of attention and lack of engagement. And this is where Canada has to come in too. We have to be engaged. We need to be there. And that is, I think, that the key challenge going forward is to pay enough attention to the most important part of the world now, and the most important in terms of economic growth, demographic growth, et cetera, is Asia. And there's so much more going on in Asia, uh, not just China. We've got uh, the Korean Peninsula. We've got Myanmar, which Bob Ray has been playing a major role in. Uh, we've got the Taiwan question um, and the China military, military expansion into the uh, international waters. Give us sort of a sense of the geopolitics and all the things that are happening outside of the economic uh, footprint. Well, I think the interesting uh, aspect of the Ukraine war is how it's reverberating in Asia is that it's really put, as you mentioned, Taiwan. So it's, it's pushing Taiwan to the, to the forefront. And in terms of how people regard the risk of China, uh, of a Chinese invasion of Taiwan, and what I was just talking about in terms of U.S. engagement, is the U.S. really going to be there? So you have Japan and Korea who have seemingly of historic rapprochement recently, um, and that was in evidence as well with uh, Prime Minister Kishida in terms of his leadership of the G7 and his invitation uh, to Korea. Um, and I think that that is going to be very important. So you have China and Korea acting in a way that Seem is seemingly because they're much closer, of course, but seeming to be coming together and would be in support of Taiwan. Um, Japan is actually very close to Taiwan uh, physically, and then they have a history of a colonial history with, with Taiwan as well. And then you have to look at it from the um, perspective of Southeast Asia as well. So Southeast Asia is uh, a huge, it's a huge market in itself. Um, it has a lot of potential. Singapore is the new Hong Kong, sadly. Um, and again, we, I think Asians in general want to see more U.S. in terms of security. Australia is playing a huge role in all of this, and not only as member of the Quad, but Australia, Australia's relationship with China has also cooled, similar to Canada, although they are, again, building up in terms of other, in other areas. Um, but if you look at the overall security, and, and also this whole concept of, of Indo-Pacific, so it was very interesting to listen to all of the statements following the G7 summit, where you had everyone talking about free and open Indo-Pacific, which we used to call FOIP, uh, which has now been supplanted by, in various ways, free, open, stable, prosperous. All, almost all the leaders had something to say about that. 
And that is, as soon as you say the word Indo-Pacific, it's Indo-Pacific and China's included, but it's not China. And so this is the, this is the impetus to uh, create this community where China is there, China is huge, but we don't talk about China. And so that, again, is more, more evidence of the hidden elephant in the room. Do we need to worry about North Korea, or is it just saber-rattling? Oh, dear. Um, well, it's a long, long discussion, I'm sure, but <laughs> yes. we, we don't have time. <laughs> no, I think North Korea is... Um, I, I've done some work on, on South Korea, and uh, in terms of working, I, I did a report on opportunities for Canadian businesses there. Um, and South, the whole, South Korea has grown. I mean, South Korea is another economic miracle in Asia, incredibly fast growth, one of the most advanced economies in, in North Asia now. And, but with sitting on sharing a peninsula with a sister country that is ready to bomb them at any point. Um, and, and even in Japan, being, knowing that Korea can, North Korea could lob a missile at any point. So that threat hangs over them constantly. And so the, the most recent um, rapprochement in terms of South Korea and Japan is very important because you want to be able to have the kind of rapid response, the kind of relationships where people talk to one another all the time, such that if something happens, they're ready to act together, which up until now, in spite of the fact that they were sharing the same threat, wasn't necessarily the case. And the U.S. has been encouraging this for some time, but there was a lot of historical baggage that had to be overcome, which I think they may have finally managed to do. Let's talk about the Ukraine war and the perspective of Asia, because we have China and India uh, um, playing a very different position than the Western democracies. Why is that, and, and are you surprised by that, or it's understandable? Well, in terms of, of, of China, um, you also have to look at where is the oil flowing and uh, oil and gas to uh, those countries, um, India being able to buy at a discount uh, due to sanctions. So, um, and also India, uh, having relied on the, Russia, the Soviet Union and Russia for most of its military equipment for years, still there. Um, and India generally, you know, India was a, sort of the leader of the non-aligned movement. Um, India has been getting closer to the United States recently. India is also a nuclear power, which people forget. Um, so I think the Ukraine war has, apart from Taiwan, which we talked about earlier, it's really brought home the fact that um, the West is not going to disintegrate. So I think this was the hope of, of China and perhaps some other countries thinking, well, you know, this is going to, this is going to make the West, uh, there's going to be too many schisms that evolve because of this war. That hasn't happened so far. So 
uh, not to any great extent. So I think that the West has stepped, the West as we call it, I think the West is not a great word, but I'll use it for lack of a better one at the moment. But those, these countries have stepped up and they continue to voice their support for Ukraine. So that that is helpful. Uh, I think that Zelensky has done a great job of uh, the Japanese term nemawashi, circling the route. He has been going around and talking to everybody and trying to get people to understand why they don't want to support Russia. And the concept of, think about it, it's still a country invading another country. That is, that doesn't happen so much anymore. We have a lot of, uh, we have a lot of different things going on, but not necessarily uh, invasions. We have civil wars, uh, but, but actually invading another country and saying this country should not exist, that should be scary to everyone. And I think people in Asia um, generally uh, have accepted the fact that this is not, that, that Russia is in error in doing this. But at the same time, there's still this sense of, I don't necessarily want to jump onto the US bandwagon every time they tell us we have to. So it's taken time for people to recognize the importance. But also, when you think about the, the economic impact of the war in Asia in terms of rising costs of, of food supplies. So food security is very important for so many countries. So that has that also had an impact in, in terms of how people view uh, the Ukraine, the war, Russia, China, etc. In the news the last few days over the weekend, we've seen some suggestions of discontent within uh, Russia. Uh, I'm not sure how, how valid it is. Do you see this coming to a, a, a resolution at some point in this year or next? How, how is this going to be resolved if, if Putin is not willing to back, back down? Uh, you're asking the wrong person. <laughs> I don't. I don't know enough about what's going on inside inside Russia. One always has to hope that eventually people will see that this is well. Just the human cost alone. Uh, I can't. I I can't imagine um, how many families have been affected by this um, in the most negative way possible. I.e., body bags. Um, and so, and it has an impact on the economy. Um, surely, um, the oligarchs are feeling it, um, although perhaps not very much compared to others in the country. Um, could, whether Putin's inner circle will finally decide that uh, he's 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 taken them down the wrong path—that's the big question. I don't know. Well, this episode we're calling from global to local, and in part two we're going to talk about local, but let's leave them with a cliffhanger as to why, even in a place like Stratford, we have to be conscious and recognize how the world can affect even our small town. Well, um, putting on my um, investment hat, I would say that Stratford benefits from being part of the automotive supply chain. And so the automotive supply chain is very much affected by everything that goes on in the world. Um, Strat City of Stratford has declared a climate emergency. 
all of that has to do with everything that goes on in the world. Well, that's great. Thanks, Deanna, and stay tuned for part two. Thank you. The Stratford Slice is produced using Anchor, Spotify's free podcasting platform, the easiest way to create, distribute, and monetize your show. Say it all with Anchor. This podcast is produced by Ran Entertainment, Southwestern Ontario's number one film, television, and digital media studio, illuminating extraordinary stories since 1995. Visit us at ballinran.com. The Stratford Slice is sponsored in part by Dancing Waters Boutique, treasures from Asia in the heart of downtown Stratford. Visit them at 11 York Street or dancingwatersboutique.com. And a special shout-out to Vista Radio and our friends at mystratfordnow.com for hosting the podcast, which is also available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. And be sure to follow us on Instagram at the Stratford Slice. Our Stratford Slice team includes technical coordinator Matt Kropp, content coordinator Aiden Boyle, social media and communications Kismet Bond, and our graphic designer Deanna Aguilar. My name is Craig Thompson. Thanks for spending this time with me.